Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports, and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyze each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. The disappearance of Lisa Marie Young is a tale that's been whispered about on dark and stormy nights around campfires here on the island for almost two decades. Where is Lisa centers around three main themes. Getting to know the real Lisa, telling the story of how her family and friends continue to fight to keep her memory alive, and exploring what truly happened that night. Now you know Lisa a little. The scrappy, short kid, determined to be on the basketball team. The hardworking teen, slugging it out at McDonald's, but dreaming of becoming a sportscaster. And the bright young woman, planning for a future so she could help care for her parents and brothers. In those early days, it was Lisa's friends and family who searched for her. They were the people who raised the alarm early and loudly. It was Lisa's First Nation community who scoured the forests. And it was Lisa's mom, Joanne, who pushed journalists for coverage and brought the community together year after year to march for justice. As for what happened to Lisa, we know she ended up at a place she didn't want to be. Some of those I spoke with believe it was there that Lisa was drugged and that she died accidentally. In this podcast, You've also heard an allegation that something even more sinister was going on that night and that a video is still out there. Although some experts I spoke with told me not finding Lisa's body is unusual, Don Young doesn't see it that way. He points to those vast areas of wild forest and ocean and believes his daughter's body could easily have been disposed of, like a needle in a haystack. I'm Laura Palmer. This is season one of Island Crime, the case of Lisa Marie Young. And this is episode six, Justice for Lisa. In this episode, I'm going full circle to where it all began for me. I first met Adrian Duplessis when I was working as a researcher at a radio station. Adrian's a former floor trader turned white-collar crime fighter. He was a frequent guest on our radio shows. His work once helped take down a billion-dollar scam involving one of the biggest and most dangerous Russian mafia networks. After that last big case, Adrian moved to an island, retreated from white-collar crime, and put his energy into music management. He manages the singer Alison Crow. Alison was a school chum of Lisa Marie Young. And so when Lisa disappeared, Adrian got pulled into a kind of investigative role once more. He has closely followed Lisa's case, and it was Adrian who first introduced me to Lisa's story. Okay, um, my name is Adrian Duplessis. I am 
manager to a musician named Alison Crowe, who was born and raised in Nanaimo and went to school with Lisa Marie Yagen and was a school chum. Much of Adrian's life has been geared towards exposing corruption and battling institutional power. He has deep concerns about the investigation. But despite his skepticism, Adrian still hopes the truth will out. Before I was a music manager, I was an investigator doing uh, investigations of white-collar and organized crime. I did that for the, the decades of the 1980s and 90s, primarily looking at stock frauds, manipulations, money laundering, etc., arising and initially out of the Vancouver Stock Exchange, where I had worked in the early 1980s, and a lot of stock scams and promotions, and when the, the VSE became known as the scam capital of the world, and following that, uh, more globally, did I investigate with uh, lawyers and journalists around the world and in looking into money laundering from the UK, US, Russia, Asia, and such. So investigated hundreds, if not thousands, of individual scams and scammers, criminals and, and crimes. You um, obviously had that connection through Allison to Lisa's case. But here you are with this good investigative brain of yours. Can you just describe how uh, you've kind of turned uh, your attention to Lisa's case and, and what you've done? I mean, we are who we are. And, and my mind is geared towards analytical thinking and figuring out systems and connecting elements to create the whole picture. I just geared that way. And in the earliest days, so at the beginning of conversations I would have with, with Joanne Young about Lisa's then, you know, disappearance. Uh, I don't call it now a disappearance. It's a murder. But initially we would talk and, and I was more of a, a, an ear, someone in whom Joanne could confide and vent. And, and I was happy to be of any comfort I could. And I be began to understand the, the, the framework in which this tragedy has taken place and recognize that I know who the killers are. I know who was involved. And numerous, numerous people, many others in the NIMO, know who's involved and, and, and who took Lisa from them, yet nothing has happened. And, and, you know, to a normal citizen, you kind of think, well, of course, you know, you can't get away with murder, but you can get away, and people do get away with murder, and in this case, they are getting away with murder. And then you have to, you know, recalibrate your senses and try and go, okay, this is happening. Why is it happening? And, and how can it possibly be addressed and fixed how like how do you sift through what you know for sure uh or at least feel reasonably confident in versus just you know there's just so much that's been said and written uh about this case i take what lisa's mom joanne and her father don to tell uh well i take what they've told me as truth and over 
15 years of being told the story as it unfolded. There were times in which things, you know, other people would contact Joanne, like later, you know, as, as months and years went on, the, the, the sort of the wild stuff would, would come in and they were, you know, they were psychics and, and people saying, oh, I've, I've had a message from Lisa, etc. You know, there were all that stuff gets encountered, but it gets filtered out and you come back to the same core story that had been established over those 15 years is the, 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 the elements that continued, you know, I mean, I, I, I have to, to be, be repeated and, and unchanged and, and things like, you know, Joanne's encounters with the police were firsthand and direct and she never changed uh, those descriptions. And I've heard some of them probably 100 or 200 times. So those, those are, there's no reason to doubt that, you know, there's, there's, you know, the ring of truth. Oh, I, with my essentially analytical mind and my decades of training as an investigator, uh, separate things is, is, is in, in a sense actually quite easy because over 15 years, you hear a lot of information and, and some of it clearly is true and is firsthand. And unless I had any reason to believe Joanne was not a credible source or Don or, or others that have given me the firsthand information, um, it, it all is accurate and, and fits and has been shown to consistent over the, 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 you know, 15 years. Mm -hmm. And then there's the stuff that's purely, I think, in the realm of, uh, speculative things like whether or not it was a, a video made of, uh, Lisa's rape and murder. I put that in the category of that's, that's speculation. And then, and then some of the stuff where, you know, uh, psychic says, so she's up uh, by the colliery dam. I, I put that in the realm of, of fiction or, or fantasy. And and all of the stuff falls under, you know, one category or another. But I, I have and am certain that most of the story that Joanne had confirmed by the end of her days before she, she left us... Um, is straight up factual evidence that should be used in a court uh, to convict those responsible for Lisa's murder. And, and hopefully uh, those responsible may still be alive when that happens. And hopefully friends and loved ones of Lisa's will still be alive when that happens. And then the fact evidence of the case that's been ignored and buried for all these years will actually get used. Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyse each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. Cindy Hall is also committed to pushing the truth forward. She is one of the first people I speak with as I begin to gather interviews. Cindy runs the Facebook advocacy group dedicated to Lisa 
and she is one of the main organizers of the yearly walk. Cindy still lives in Nanaimo. The day I drive across the island to meet with her is a bright fall day. The forest on either side of the highway is orange, red, and yellow, brilliant autumn colors. When I reach the ocean, it's glittering in the sunlight. It's the kind of day where you feel grateful to be alive and lucky to live on this beautiful island. Cindy meets me at her parents' home in a pleasant suburban neighborhood. The school year has just begun and kids are headed back to class. It's early, and when I knock on the door, I'm welcomed by Cindy's mom and offered a cup of coffee. The walls are covered with photographs of the natural beauty of the island. Their home is warm and cheerful. In the middle of the dining room is a gorgeous bouquet of red and white roses. When Cindy arrives, I'm struck by how youthful she is. Cindy went to school with Lisa, and that means she's likely approaching 40. She's slim with long, dark hair. She tells me she's an anxious person and is anything but comfortable with doing interviews. There is something about that lovely bouquet of roses and the eager welcome I receive from Cindy and her family that's a bit unnerving. This story means so much to the people who love Lisa. There's a chatty small dog inside, so we head outside to my old Honda hatchback to talk about Lisa. It's the first of many interviews I will do while sitting behind the wheel. So my name is Cindy Hall, and I knew Lisa. She was an acquaintance of mine. We had similar friends. Can you tell me how you first met her? So I would have first met Lisa through my good friend, Carol Ann. Carol Ann used to live with Lisa, so that's how I met her. Um, she was very energetic, outgoing. She seemed confident. She was really friendly. Um, I remember she used to always dress up, and then we used to sit around, uh, I think it was a kitchen table, and listen to country music. But she was just a very outgoing girl. She was always dressed really nice, modern dress clothes, high boots, jewelry, and she was very petite. She was, oh, I can't remember how tall she was, but maybe even five foot two for five foot four, and she just had a really slim build. She had brown hair when I met her, and yeah, she wore makeup and it was always done nice. She just always looked very um, together. She was very outgoing. She would dance. She was just a be attracted to her personality. She was a very social person and she had a lot of friends. So back then we would say you would go out in a group and it would be very social. We would meet other strangers and hang out with them, go for food with them. You would even go to, say, a host party with them. It was just so much more social. We just didn't have as many fears, I think. Or we were just naive <laughs> to what was going on. Two years ago, when um, Lisa's mom, Joanne, died, it made me think, like, um, maybe someone in Naramo should step up and help because her dad and her brothers live here, but it's so emotional for them. I just don't think 
they're able to, like they can do it, but emotionally I don't think they're able to do it. So then I started um, posting Lisa's missing poster everywhere. My goal is I keep track of what streets I do and I'm putting one on each street in the name of Lisa instead of just putting them in bunches like I used to. So I just do awareness like campaigns. What drives you? That it could be me. And as an, I'm half Indigenous, and as a half Indigenous woman, I have a higher chance of being murdered or going missing. And I always can put myself in other people's shoes now. And I think, what well, if I went missing? And then my family did have lots of support. So, you know, a lot of people might care or mm-hmm. might have an interest but you really this is passion. a big I'm a yeah. passionate person I throw like when I believe in something I do it so when I care about something I just give it all um and yet you live in a small community yeah. a community where there may well be people who were involved mm-hmm. in Lisa's disappearance What's that like? It scares me because my face is out there. My name is out there. Like, it's hard. But even if you stand alone, your voice shakes, you're petrified, I believe in doing it. It's the right thing. My number one goal is to bring Lisa home, to take her remains home for her family and friends. And then the next chapter is bringing someone to justice. It's possible at some point somebody who was at that party that night mm-hmm. might listen to this podcast. Mm-hmm. What would you want them to think about? What would you want them to do? I want them to think about the life Lisa had before that night and if they know what happened to her. I want them to think about what happened to her. Then I want them to think about her family and her friends who have gone 17 years without knowing. And even if that person's scared, you have to do the right thing. You have to come forward. I want them to think of her mom dying with not knowing. And Joanne fought for her daughter right up to her last breath. I live in fear, but I still do the right thing. So I want them to come forward. Cindy's efforts to bring attention to Lisa's case really is impressive. As I've worked on this story, I've observed her online in the Facebook group she helps administer in Lisa's name. She is passionate and persistent. If someone does come forward with information in Lisa Marie's case, I won't be surprised if they are motivated to do so by Cindy's work. Cindy has remained in this community and lives with the reminders, the unease, and the fear of being an advocate for Lisa in a place where many people would prefer to forget Lisa's story. Musician Alison Crowe also counts Lisa as a friend, but she no longer lives on the island. Her musical career has taken her across the country to another island. Um, my name is Alison Crowe. I live now in, uh, in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. Uh, since 2005, uh, but I am originally from Nanaimo, BC, Canada, on Vancouver Island, um, yeah, where I was born and raised. 
I'm a singer-songwriter, and I'm also a, a actor and musical director and director. So I was a schoolmate of Lisa uh, at Woodland Secondary School. I uh, I would have met Lisa uh, somewhere. I would say in that time frame. I think kind of like grade nine or ten. Lisa was always really cool looking to me. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, it was the 90s and she had um, she had really long brown hair. And I, I remember there was a point where she had kind of like chunky blonde highlights, I feel. I can't remember. I don't I don't think she went all blonde, but I definitely remember some highlights um, and thinking that was super cool because, I mean, now nowadays everyone has highlights and, and crazy colors in their hair. So this was kind of like cool for back then you know she dressed really cool and funky I remember sort of like those those chokers that kind of uh they look like they're tattooed onto you but they're plastic uh that kind of that kind of style you know I you know I remember Lisa as being um just a really she had this sort of air of like a, a quiet confidence about her you know, she was non-judgmental in in so in a wonderful kind of way. You know, and she was someone that you could talk to, and she would just listen. I remember, uh, you know, in the early days of what I uh, do now. You know, uh, being a musician, basically, she was super supportive. You know, I remember her coming to the Queens to see a show and talking to her after and all that kind of stuff. She was, yeah, she was, she was just always so kind. You know. I mean, I really clearly remember hearing about it for the first time because I had just gotten back uh, from the first tour I ever did, uh, which was across Canada in this sort of uh, busted up motorhome. <laughs> and uh, we got back and, you know, um, a lot of us in the band and uh, friends connected to that uh, new Lisa. And we heard about it like right when we got back. I, I, I want to say like the day we got back or the day after we got back. And it was just kind of one of those things that you hear and you're like, that can't, you gotta, you're kidding, right? Like that can't be real. And you know, yeah, no, it's real. Like she's gone. I, I feel like we were all just like, what do we do? Like, this is so awful. You know, this is just so unbelievably awful. And we just felt so sorry. We just felt so horrible for her family you know, and, and her friends that were the closest to her, I, I mean, they're just heartbroken. You know, we just wanted to kind of help, but, you know, what do you do? Of course, it's it's scary, right? Um, you think, okay, well, if something has happened to her, like, what was it? And is someone, like, walking around? Like, are, you know, you see these posters and you know it had on it this burgundy jaguar like that kind of stuff and so everybody's looking out for a burgundy jaguar like it's just this this thing hanging over the town and and all of us and i mean we still talk about it right after that first vigil you know i kind of went home like i wrote it that night i think you know that was again it's a long time ago but i'm pretty sure i went home and wrote it that night because it was just upset um and it was like you know what can I do you know what can I do to help and like I can't really do anything but I you know I just 
wanted to give him something so I, I wrote this song and uh, it was like you know I just want to write this and get this to the family and that's kind of how I got to know the family yeah so that's kind of how that happened I was at my parents house and in the living room at the piano just kind of you know probably pacing <laughs> and just being upset and writing out everything that was you know coming out of my brain uh, at that time I don't understand, you know, like, if, if someone somewhere has to know something, you know, and I don't know how you can know something like that and just hold it for all those years. Like, I don't get it. Just come clean. Just, just admit it. Uh, how are you living with this? You know, just please, please just be honest. You know, and it breaks my heart. It completely breaks my heart that Lisa's mom died without having this closure, and I really, really hope that her family can have it soon. Because they deserve it, right? This is the haunting, beautiful song for Lisa, written and performed by Alison Crow. If there are advances in the investigation, perspectives which move the needle forward, I will update this podcast. I want to be the one To say that I found you safe and held you in my arms I want anyone else in the world to tell me said hey baby it's cool there's no reason to be scared anymore took you home and held you in held you in held you
the sea into your door take you home but i'm so scared that home is in I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Island Crime. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together, and we were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.